Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest is Roger R. Reese, and we will be discussing his book, Russia's Army, A History from the Napoleonic Wars to the War in Ukraine, that was published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2023. Roger R. Reese is a professor of history at Texas A&M University and has authored numerous articles and books on the Russian military, including why Stalin's soldiers fought the Red Army's military effectiveness in World War II. Uh, Roger Reese, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, we always like to begin our uh, interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's kind of the backstory behind writing this book. Uh, well, uh, I've been in a profession for, um, to go back to grad school, almost 40 years now. So I've been uh, studying uh, the Russian military professionally since then, um, but actually, uh, I was in the army as an as an infantry officer for a few years before that. So, uh, of course, they were at the forefront of my thinking because that was uh, our potential adversary back in the Cold War. So uh, it's kind of like my whole career has led up to, to 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 this book in particular. That's kind of brought everything together that I've ever worked on or looked into. Um, but specifically, I was I was asked to write this book. Uh, the University of Oklahoma Press is putting together uh, a series on uh, the world's armies, and they wanted me to do Russia. And I said, okay. <laughs> I think, uh, and it was very interesting for me because uh, uh, the more I get into my career, the, the bigger it gets. I started out just doing uh, the Stalin era, the early Stalin, pre-World War II Russian army, uh, Soviet army. Uh, Then my next book kind of brought me into doing the whole Soviet period, and then I got uh, more into that, and then I got really curious about the late imperial period. uh, And so my previous book to this one was about that. And I was, when I, when I did that book, I I was thinking, you know, I really wish I had known all this stuff before I did my Soviet stuff, (laughs) because they're so connected. Um, And so when they asked, Oklahoma asked me to do this one and take it back to the Napoleonic era, I thought, well, that's that's a good uh, uh, opportunity for me to, you know, enlarge my knowledge even more, stretch back to to those years and see where they led up to the, uh, how they contributed to how the army was in the late imperial and then subsequently to now. So um, it's kind of a growth experience for me. I always look look for those opportunities, um, not just to, well, to learn for myself, but then to share that with the reading public. Now, what kind of contribution does this book make to the overall literature on Russian uh, military history? I believe it was in the preface. You actually kind of talked about this issue a bit. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, I think one of the, the most important thing that I add uh, is that this book covers the three different political uh, periods. Uh, we got the imperial period and the Soviet period and now the contemporary period. And there is no work out there that links all these things to look for the continuities 
uh, and then what what has changed, what hasn't changed. Those, uh, and it, it's really very very enlightening. I think to look at the Russian army today it, at war and compare that to the previous two hundred years. Um, now, uh, how important is military power to Russia's status as a great power? Because it seems like Russia kind of focuses more on the military aspect of great power prestige than, say, the United States, which does have a major military, but it also focuses on economic uh, factors. Right. This is uh, one of the constants in Russian history is that um, for Russia to be a power of any sort at any level, it has always been based on its military might. Uh, It had a chance to get away from that uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union when its economy for the first time was actually globally relevant with oil and natural resources and the export of food to the third world, uh, which it had never done before. Uh, but it ha- Putin has chosen to go back to the, um, the military aspect of that, but it has always been. I mean, Russia's economy has really not been all that relevant to Europe or, or, or the global economy uh, until very recently. And I think Putin has kind of squandered that, very much overplayed his soft power advantages with with food and petroleum so it was the military the military is what made the rest of europe pay attention to russia to to respect it for not for the good it could do but for the harm it could do really now you begin the book with the napoleonic era like 1800 this is the reign of czar paul the first i believe because catherine the great just died and russia is still kind of under the autocracy uh system which it will still have until the revolution the february revolution of 1917 how did the czarist autocracy affect the russian army at this time during the early 19th century uh i would say if you want a scale of uh, one to ten its effect was like 150 um the army was the czar's toy his tool his passion or or her if it's arena um, and it was everything to keeping the czar in power and to uh, projecting power. So the czars paid very close attention to what was going on in the army, particularly uh, even, I mean, micromanaging various aspects, but particularly the officer corps, you know, uh, all, you know appointing the generals, uh, placing them in all the very the, the important assignments. Those things were handled directly by the czar. Uh, you mentioned Paul the first. When we get to some more irrelevant things, um, like designing uniforms, uh, it, uh, demanding parades on every other occasion in St. Petersburg for for the guards units, but it it, it the paying attention to the army actually probably took up more of their time than any other aspect of governing, uh, but by choice because they didn't delegate authority very well. They're very uh, stingy. With with their prerogatives over the over the military, so uh, you can see that the army is very much a, a a direct thumbprint of the autocracy. Now you just mentioned how the czar would appoint officers. How how was the officer corps usually uh, recruited? Who usually was allowed into the officer corps at this time? Yeah. Uh, so when I hear the word re- recruit, uh, I think of and. It in the active tense, where you go out and you find people and you try to persuade them to be part of your organization. Uh, that's not how it was uh, in the Imperial Army. Uh, they just waited for people to show up. And so the people who showed up 
had to be uh, in the nobility and a member of the noble class. So uh, there's a lot of family tradition about that. Uh, now, I mean, when the army was started under Peter, uh, Peter the first, uh, nobles had to be either in the army or the, the bureaucracy for a certain period of time. Uh, but that had gone away uh, with Catherine the Great. So, but still there's a lot of family traditions of office, of nobles serving in the military, at least for uh, you know three or four years or, 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 or for life if they chose, but it was very random. <laughs> And they typically started out, uh, well, well, they had to attack. There was really two armies going on in Russia at the time. The guards units stationed in St. Petersburg were a whole, really kind of a, a separate army uh, that were there to guard the czar. Um, and only, you know, the wealthier nobles or prominent, from the more prominent families were allowed to be in that. But the vast uh, officer corps uh, in the line units were typically uh, lesser nobles, more impoverished nobles, um, who tip, they really, they just, uh, the, the father would contact uh, the commander of whatever regiment he wanted his son in, send him a letter, set up an interview, bring his kid there. And this, we're talking about teenagers. Uh, you, could, you could start uh, in the military at 16 or 17. Um, and he would start as, as a private trainee to be an officer. You know, they understood you're a noble, but you had to work your way up. And, and that actually kind of started with um, uh, Peter I as well. So, but in the guards, um, fathers would enroll their sons as privates or whatever uh, when they were born. So by the time they're 18 or 19, they could start off as a, a you know, captain, major, or colonel to have enough money. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous and, and not very efficient uh, system there. So uh, it, it was the officer training from the, from the beginning there was uh, mostly a, an apprenticeship. And then once they thought you were ready, then the regiment commander would uh, offer you a commission and a, and a slot in his regiment. So it's not very well uh, regulated at all. Everything depended on, on the family connections, the uh, regiment commanders of uh, personality, his choices, and, and then the merit. I mean, there were some guys just didn't cut it, and the uh, 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 officers would say, no. The, actually, the regimental officers had, had a say in, like, after the apprenticeship was due to be reviewed, do we want to keep this guy or not? And they could say, like, no, we, we don't really want him. Could be for merit, could be for personality issues. <laughs> um, so, but it became more bureaucratized uh, after uh, Alexander II's reforms, then the Ministry of Defense started to uh, like create a career path, um, take power away from the regiment commanders to commission people, make that uh, really a more institutionalized, regularized fashion, and promotions would be more regularized that way as well. Now, what type of social status did the officer corps uh have at this time during like the Napoleonic period? The Napoleonic period had very high social status among the nobility. Right? Um, peasants who are going to be drafted or, or forced to serve one way or another, they just saw officers as uh, just another noble, you know. Uh, but within the nobility, uh, it had very high social status. Now, for the rank and file soldiers of the Russian army at this time, this was kind of based on conscription and 
the other major institution of serfdom, which is uh, where the peasants were tied to a particular area under a particular noble. What was the connection between serfdom and military conscription during this time, like the Napoleonic period? Right. Well, even from the Napoleonic period all the way up until the emancipation in the 1860s, um, there was no actual Ministry of Defense conscription uh, mechanism. It was all run through the land landowners that the, the Ministry of Defense would come up with a, a number for a particular province, uh, a number of soldiers for the province to deliver. They would send that to the governor and then he would send it. Uh, he would apportion that among various districts in, in in the province, and then the the marshals of the nobility would then tell each landowner how many they had to give up. And it was actually the landowners and the peasants themselves who decided who had to go uh, to the military, which which was for life. Uh, uh, under Peter, then it got down to twenty five years, and then by the Crimean War, it was officially twenty. More often, guys could get let go at, at 15, but it was a big deal to be taken away. And that's how the peasants saw it. So you're taking a guy away from our family forever. <clears throat> so it was a very un unpopular process. Um, and, and again, it wasn't the government really didn't control it. It was all the, the nobility decided, okay, I'll give you this guy. And of course, they're going to give you the guy that's the least productive on their land. You know, they're they're not going to give you the, the army, their, their best, hardest working, most intelligent serf. They want to keep him to make money for them. So he tended to not get the cream of the crop. Let's just be, be say that nicely. <laughs> Probably some of the troublemakers that they just wanted to get rid of yeah, anyways. Yeah. Very expedient method of doing that. Yeah. And also a threat. Uh, the, the, the landowners would say, you better, if you don't straighten up, I'll send you to the army. You know, that, that got people's attention. So. <laughs> So what type of impact did the Napoleonic Wars, we're kind of speaking about 1800 to about 1815, and of course there's the big campaign of 1812 when Napoleon invades Russia. I know it's kind of hard to summarize an entire war period uh, in one question, but what was the general impact this had on the Russian military overall? Um, I, I would say in the long term, looking back at it, it was... A, a a negative impact in the sense that um, you know, it, it, it ballooned to a huge size. Um, they took lots of casualties. They they helped win uh, get Napoleon out of power the first time. You got to remember there were no Russians at Waterloo, um, so uh, that actually kind of lost a little bit of luster at that point in the eyes of the Western Europeans. But the problem was then the army was huge. And they couldn't send all the serfs home because serfs didn't go home. Serfs stayed in the army until their, their time was up, which was 15, 20, 25 years uh, before they were freed. So it was very expensive. They had this big army you don't really need. That was oh, a huge problem for them to expand uh, to a huge size and then have to be stuck with it for decades. Um, but the, the really, so it was very expensive to maintain this huge army in peacetime, which they didn't really want to do. But they got very proud of themselves. The officer corps was very proud of themselves. It's like, we are the ones who beat Napoleon. And so they kind of stagnated in their military th um, theory uh, outlook. They're like, well, we'll just keep doing what we did against Napoleon. That's got to work against everybody else. And they tended to fall behind the times. 
uh, relative to military advances in, in thought and even technology in Western Europe. And part of that, of course, I'm thinking you might be alluding to that you had the, the Decemberist revolt uh, in 1825 uh, by military officers trying to, death well, you know, Alexander I had died. They were trying to get find out who the next czar was going to be. And in that, that interim, um, some liberal, reform-minded, anti-autocratic officers tried to seize power in order to create a liberal constitutional state of some sort. They didn't have, they didn't really flesh all that out. And, you know, to free the serfs and do all these wonderful uh, liberal democratic things. Uh, that failed. Uh, I mean, it collapsed within a day. Uh, on the day it started, it, it ended. But that made the new heir to the throne, the new czar, Nicholas I, uh, very wary of his army and Western ideas, ideas that he claimed these officers picked up during the campaign in Europe during the Napoleonic Wars. So he actually kind of created the first Iron Curtain between Russia and the West, and that really hurt them militarily, uh, which they found out during the Crimean War when Russia, the Britain and France showed up with modern technology that Russia was not especially aware of and, and couldn't keep up with. So uh, that's kind of where the, the, the interim between Napoleonic Wars, the, the kind of long-range impact of political thought, the revolution, the huge army, the self-satisfaction um, kind of set them up for defeat in the Crimean War, I think. Yeah, and one other impact of the Decemberist Revolt was Nicholas set up the first modern uh, secret police, the Okhrana, in Russia, which would later have impact on both Tsarist Russia and then later Soviet and post-Soviet Russia. All right, so good point. So the, the, the major groups that it that Okhrana was keeping an eye on were the nobles, because they were educated and, and prone to have ideas and travel, but also the military. The Okhrana was, was constantly, you know, keeping an eye on, on the military, make sure they, they were going to, you know, who, who was loyal, who wasn't. Um, and that kind of, you know, we see that in the, in the Stalin era as well, or the Soviet era. So, you know, people were, from that point on, you know, um, the autocrats, communist dictators were unsure of the loyalty of their army. Well, whether they yeah. needed it or not, but they, they just kind of had that in the back of their minds. Yeah, because also at this time, a lot of like the biggest Russian radicals came from the nobility and even from the military families i could think of offhand mikhail bakunin who's the father of modern anarchism he was from a noble family and he i believe he was also a russian uh, an officer of the czarist army wasn't he originally probably yeah. Yeah. you know you, you excellent point because officers are part of the nobility they have money they travel their kids are well educated and uh, a lot of officers kids became radicals uh, throughout the years I know yes. later on, oh, sorry. Uh, I know later on, uh, Pyotr uh, Korobkin, the anarchist yep. prince, he was from the nobility and he also had a, in fact, that was part of his uh, first career was doing work for the Russian army uh, in the later 19th century, too. So, yeah, I mean, he actually was, his father got him into the Corps of Pages with the most elite military school to keep you close to the throne and be in a guards officers and, and, uh, uh, he was on track to do that, but actually he was very disappointed by the emancipation and turned did a 180, became anti-autocratic and anarchist. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the stagnation from the Napoleonic period. 
And this definitely affected the performance of the Russian army in the Crimean War in eight, in the 1850s. So how did this ha- impact the Russian military? Did they finally see that they had to kind of modernize or reform their ways? Uh, what was the impact? Mm. Well, the, uh, yeah, the real impact was on the Alexander II who came into the military, came into the, the throne um, during the war. And he's the one who ended it. Uh, and he always had this problem. And he, I mean, you can kind of see this throughout the whole Russian military experience in the book is uh, a reformer will come along and say, I, I identify problems here that like anybody can see. Like there's a, <laughs> some major problems here. And yet you have a really hardcore group of senior officers who would say, no, there's no, there's no problem. <laughs> You know, if we had more time, we'd had this or that. But like, basically, what we do is good. And so, um, Alexander II, he really had to overcome that. I mean, the the uh, he had, he had, it took him uh, until the eighteen seventies, mid eighteen before we finally get the really meaningful reforms done in the military. That's almost twenty years after the war of him trying to work in that direction. Uh, he, but he finally got. A, a minister of defense, um, Dmitry Milyutin, who shared his vision. Actually, it was a little bit farther to the left than Alexander appreciated um, at times. But he had to overcome a, a really strong sense of traditionalism in order to make changes. Um, and against this sense of denial that we don't have any, that we don't have any problems. And, um, but it took uh, the military reforms took place in the context of, of really complete national social reforms, so social, economic, and, and even political reforms uh, that Alexander II initiated to really improve the army. They had to get rid of serfdom, uh, which Alexander agreed just didn't need serfdom in the first place. If you want to reform the economy, you got to get rid of serfdom. So they kind of put those two together, uh, and getting rid of serfdom was the, the, the biggest challenge. Once that w- was overcome, then the, the military was like, okay, now we don't have serfs and serf owners to give us recruits. We need to have an institutionalized system of recruiting enlisted men. And so they created the whole mechanism of conscription and created new rules and said, no more life service. We're going to make it six years. Uh, and and then we, with six years, then we can have create a a standing reserve, a trained, ready reserve. I shouldn't, say, I shouldn't have said standing. They, uh, a ready reserve of trained personnel that could be called back into service in time of war and then sent home. So it won't be this huge mass of people sitting around on the government payroll not contributing to the economy. So that was probably the, the, one of the, the biggest changes was ending serfdom, creating a, a system of cons- still conscripted uh, enlistment of short-term, you know, six years, it doesn't sound that short to us, but uh, short-term thing and creating this this uh, reserve to expand the military temporarily in time of war. And the other major change that came from that, again, really direct to the Crimean War. In the Crimean War, the army got almost to 2 million guys. <laughs> it's like, that was just unsustainable. So they had to, you know, get rid of, send a lot of guys home uh, much earlier. But Alexander did look at the performance of the military and say the officer corps really dropped the ball on this one. Again, because they're thinking in Napoleonic terms, 
from 1812 uh, 18, to 1815, and the British and the French were not thinking in those terms. Uh, and so again, they were outclassed. So Milyutin decided we need, uh, we can't just wait for people to show up. Um, we need to actively recruit, not just nobles, but open the officer corps to anybody. Anybody with the uh, minimum uh, educational uh, requirements that they set up, which was really very low. Um, like six years of schooling and you could enter uh, the military education system. No more just showing up at a regiment and being an apprentice. Now all officers had to come through an education system, a military run education system, prove themselves, get taught what the military wanted them to know, and then embark on a career path that was much more predictable, you know, according to the Ministry of Defense. So now um, the officer corps was open to the entire Russian society, uh, people of talent. Uh, that made a huge difference. Uh, and, and non-nobles. So, so by the time World War I breaks out, um, half of all officers are non-noble who've come up through either through the ranks. Actually, they actively recruited officers from within the, the conscripts. You know, and, and the, the regiment commanders, battalion commanders were told, Who's your sharpest guys? Suggest to them going to, uh, you know, becoming an officer, and they would, you know, test them and send them on to, to the local uh, military schools. Yeah, that's very interesting. It kind of made me think of similar reforms in the Prussian military under Rune in the 1860s. Was Malutin at all like influenced by those reforms, or was he kind of looking at what Prussia was doing as a model of like how Russia could reform its military? Yeah, he definitely was. And, and some of the things that they created uh, for the Russian army, I, I thought were unique until I started looking at some of the Prussian army. Oh, that's definitely where they got that. Um, about, again, trying to recruit officers on um, people who are already educated from civilian life um, with, you know, eight to 10 years education or college educations, offering them uh, one year of service as an ensign, like an officer trainee, uh, provided that they would, so they would be exempt from the draft. If you volunteer for one year, you won't be subjected to be drafted for six years, uh, which I mean, stop right there. That was another big thing about the draft. Previously, only peasants were conscripted. Under the Milyutin reforms, uh, everybody, all males were subjected to be drafted, including nobles to be drafted and serve as privates, uh, which did happen. Uh, not that many, they would, um, but he offered them an out. If you're educated, you can volunteer to serve as an officer trainee for a year uh, and then go into the reserves. So when we, if we have to mobilize, we have reserve officers. And these are these one-year guys who are already educated. They got that directly from the Prussian army. Uh, so. Now, pretty soon in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 to 78, the Russia, some of these uh, reforms were put to the test. How did the Russian army kind of perform during this war, especially compared to how it performed back in the Crimean War? Well, it very much depends on who you're looking at. So the soldiers did fine. They, they did very well. Uh, these are much shorter term serving soldiers. Uh, it's actually like, like the first generation to serve under the reforms from the, the actual the conscription reform took effect uh, like January 1st, 1875. Uh, I mean, all the laws were passed and worked on in 1874, or whatever. 
Uh, so th these are these guys uh, at war, and they, they did great. The soldiers, the lower ranks, fought well, bravely, smart, whatever. Uh, Mid-level officers uh, did okay. Uh, the planning for the war was superb. The general staff um, had really upped its game since the Crimean War, uh, upped the standards of education for these guys. Um, so they planned a, a really, really good war. Um, but the problem was the autocracy. Um, the czar had the right uh, and used it to appoint senior commanders. Actually, anybody, he could appoint any commander of any unit. And so he put, um, Alexander II put one of his brothers in charge, um, uh, Grand Duke Nicholas uh, I. Actually, maybe he's like, a cousin or somebody as a relative of his got put in charge and he, he and, and and some other favorites we put a lot of family members in charge of units and that was a disaster they didn't follow the plan uh they weren't militarily qualified and they the the, the a war that could have been won realistically in three months i mean and i say that's a real easy. I ideally it had the potential to be won in, in pretty short order. Uh, the, the Turks were, were just not ready. They were outclassed and, and they had a ton of their own problems. But the the commanders, the senior commanders, which made terrible decisions, um, and some of the senior generals as well, uh, there was no aging out of the Russian army. Usually people stayed in and well, if they're gonna make a career out of it and made general, they stayed in until they died. There were guys in their 70s and 80s. On, on campaign, you know, and that's just didn't work well. So, um, yeah, so in, in, in these cases, and we, we see them, we've seen them before, uh, Russia's going to win, but they have to expend a lot more time, a lot more money, and a lot more lives than they really needed to, uh, to finally win it. Now, as a result of uh, Malutin's uh, reforms, what kind of status did the Russian army obtain in Russian society during the later half of the 19th uh, century? Because we did talk about how during the Napoleonic period or the earlier 19th century, you know, military service was seen as kind of a punishment for misbehaving serfs, but it was a high status for the nobility. Did, did anything really change in the status of like ordinary soldiers and officers during the uh, 19th century, later half of the 19th century? Yeah, yeah, it really did. Um, not necessarily for the better. Soldiers, uh, people who were who were going to be conscripted, still saw it as as a bad deal. You know, they, they didn't want to be part of that. They six years. I mean, you're drafted when you're 20. You don't come home till you're 26. You know, is your girl still waiting for you? You know, I don't know. Well, at least you get to come home. But uh, the families did still still see it as a burden. It wasn't nearly as catastrophic as it was before, but. Uh, the service as an enlisted person was still seen as uh, uh, in, in a very negative light. But that's kind of like the global standard, <laughs> I think. Um, it, enlisted service in, in the 19th century just or and before was never really seen as a great deal. Um, now, for the officer corps, things were, were, were different. On the one hand, uh, we have a much more literate society now. It's becoming more literate with the emancipation. Public schooling is becoming um, more widely uh, available. Um, 
and I said, you know, like half the office war is going to going to become non-noble. So uh, while a, a peasant wouldn't want to get drafted, we are seeing peasants who, uh, I mean, made the effort to get educated, and then they became officers. They saw the army as a means of social mobility. So again, the officer corps is, is seen as like that's my way out of the village, my way to actually becoming a noble, get noble status, and whatever. Um, but on the other hand. Uh, educated society was becoming more liberal. Uh, the, the, the Iron Curtain's down. Uh, Western thoughts, Western travelers are coming in. The Russians are allowed to travel more freely. And um, I mean, it, uh, in all of Western Europe, right? We're having we have Revolution of eighteen forty eight. We have liberal. We have constitutions. All these ideas. Uh, governments are becoming much more responsive um, to their population, and so the educated Russian society. Uh, once that. Uh, and so they look at the army as a tool of the autocracy, which it is, that is going to work to prevent liberal progress in Russia. So now we have from noble society pretty much uniformly respecting the military to being divided. And every decade, more and more nobles went into, uh, I would say, more of an unmilitary, anti-military mode than pro-military regarding officer corps and the whole institution. Yeah, and we see this impact uh, in 1905, both with the Russo-Japanese War, which is a real catastrophic, humiliating defeat for the Russians, and then that also sparks the revolution of 1905. And the Russian army does play an important role in the revolution. What was kind of the impact of both the Russo-Japanese War and then later the the revolution of 1905 on the Russian army. Uh, okay, so first let me say, my professional opinion uh, is that the war does not spark the revolution. They were kind of coincidental. Um, it certainly uh, facilitated the revolution, but all those sparks were there um, and things were happening before the Russo-Japanese war got started. Um, so they kind of fed on each other at one point in the sense that um, I mean, this is where we see Russia's first organized, maybe may organized is a little generous term here, but overt anti-war movement. We have people protesting the war, uh, trying to get soldiers to evade the draft, to desert. Um, and this was a conscious political act, not really so much against the war as it was against the autocracy and the desire for change. So here we have for the first time soldiers you know, Almost a million reservists get mobilized, and there are people showing up at their mobilization stations saying, "Don't do it! Don't go! Don't serve the czar!" <laughs> uh, so that's at least you know. And, and the war in, in Manchuria was fought uh, almost fifty percent by reservists and half regular troops. So you have guys brought back from uh, who had served as privates, been discharged, got their lives going, and are being called back who with already bad attitudes uh and then they're these are reinforced by people who are saying this is not a good war the czar's sending you to, to die for no reason in in asia uh and your family's going to hurt economically for this and the czar never really sold that war to the russian people as a big as a, a a political failure to 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 organize the messaging to get people behind it um so that impact on the army in the war definitely showed up on the battlefield. I mean, soldiers still fought 
pretty well. But we see lots of guys drifting away from the front line, reservists particularly drifting away from the front lines, not really wanting to press the attack, sacrifice themselves for a questionable war for uh, a politically opposed czar. And that was a lot more anti. And we had the whole revolutionary movement has been going on by this time for 40 years. <laughs> so that that's that's in the in the air. It's in the water that soldiers are aware of. Um, again, the problem in in Manchuria, if anything, was really the, in the senior officers, the uh, like Colonel Patkin from the top, not really organizing his subordinates, not getting support from St. Petersburg that he needed, um, losing winnable battles. Um, uh, which also you know, kind of demoralized the soldiers. You know, they would absolutely massacre a Japanese attack, and then the officers, the senior officers, were like, "Oh, that, that was pretty bad. Let's let's leave," <laughs> and they surrender the battlefield. And the soldiers, were like, I, "I thought we won that one." Uh, so um, th that caused a lot of turmoil inside the military. Um, but then the revolution starts, you know, picks up in 1905, um, and the, the whole army basically mutinies in in 1905 and it lasts until like 1908 before it's really settled and the mutinies very very seldom took but, but it did there, there was uh, uh include acts of violence it was mostly uh non-obedience to orders um soldiers were like you know for weeks at a time like you know we're not gonna fall out to train <laughs> you know when we hear the, the breakfast bell ring we'll get up for that and we'll have political meetings um they didn't want to go and suppress strikes or or riots um uh but there there were occasional attacks against officers um there were um a lot hundreds of confrontations in which the soldiers demanded changes and the changes they wanted were basically quality of life changes uh, better food, more nutritious food, uh, better barracks. Uh, they wanted sheets and pillows and blankets. Can you imagine this? This army's been around since Peter the Great. They've never been issued sheets, blankets, and pillows. They just sat on a straw, they slept on a straw mat with their overcoat as a blanket. And I, come on, this is 1905. We, the army should give us blankets, <laughs> several blankets. And I mean, it's Russia, come on. Uh, and fuel for the for the stoves. Um, so basic quality of life stuff is what they want. And also stop beating us, like stop smacking us around. And uh, that sometimes it has very specific requests, get rid of Lieutenant so-and-so, send him away or a Sergeant so-and-so. These guys are just brutal. Um, they're not really leaders. They're just, they just show up and beat us and yell at us and things. So those are the types of things they wanted. And, and this was uh, a, a career killer. If, if a commander had a mutiny in his unit, he was fired. He was, you know, cashiered. Uh, and it, it, did, it, it only, uh, soldiers' disobedience only constituted a, a, a mutiny if they collectively made a demand to their commander. And that was considered a mutiny. It's like, soldiers have no right to get together and demand that. Uh, a commander do something or 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 will do or will do something that um, they actually just submitted a petition they're okay but if they say if you don't respond to us then we're gonna you know burn down the barracks or or kill some officers or do other then that's a mutiny so officer tried to cover cover that up because they didn't want that out 
And, but um, I think, you know, who, who's watching this? You know, the Okrana, they're watching us and they would rat out officers. They, 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 every month they would send a list uh, of units that had a, a mutiny like this to the Ministry of Defense, Ministry of the Interior, who, who they work for, and the Tsar. <laughs> and so there's really a lot of tension there between the Okrana and the military leadership because like we don't we don't want you ratting out our officer we need to cover this stuff up um to save our careers but still they're like um i guess i'm, I'm going to long, get long winded here but in the process of shutting down this mutiny and getting soldiers back into line the army did the right thing uh in 1906 well, of course we have a, the whole we, we have a a constitution is issued in 1906 they have uh, a legislature, the Duma, state Duma's created in 1906. Soldiers can vote uh, or they have representatives. This is a huge deal. And what they got out of it was they reduced the term of service from six years to three years. Uh, it was one of the soldiers' demands across the country. Uh, so that was very good. The soldiers like, okay, that's what we want. We want that. They uh, authorize more food and better food. You know, the delivering that is a little bit. And they also mandated... Um, more issue of uniforms, more sets of uniforms, and sheets and pillows and blankets, basically. Uh, so the soldiers the, came out way ahead on that. Uh, uh, but, but particularly, the, I think the whole country just felt good or much better about the military when the terms of conscription were reduced to three years. That seemed to, to the, the peasantry, lower classes, like, that's reasonable. Yeah, I don't really need to try to avoid the draft for that. Like, you know, that that's that that seems to be what it, it ought to have been all the time. Um, so, uh, but the officer corps was like furious <laughs> that they had had to cave in to, to all these demands. Uh, they thought it was the end of the world type of thing. But it, it was actually, I think, the army was was so much better off after after that revolution. Um, they got back to training. They had lost three years of training. <laughs> Basically, because of because of all that, um, so but also it did it, it alert it alarmed the, the the czar like you know the army. I mean, we if officers are loyal, but the soldiers aren't. That that's a big problem. It used to be the officers weren't loyal, but the soldiers were. So now now we're not sure where we're going to go on the next next go around. You know. Yeah, and uh, less than ten years after this, uh, we have World War One, and Russia gets plunged into probably the biggest war up to that point uh, in European history. And how did the Russian army kind of perform uh, during World War One? And we're kind of talking about before the revolution. Yeah. Well, uh, the Russian army, again, they had a great plan for, for World War One. The, the, the general staff had been planning what to do if they had to fight Germany or Austria. They'd been planning that for uh, almost 20 years. We had the, the, the Franco-Russo alliance from 1892, and that they really started the real planning at the almost turn of the century. Um, uh, but, well, they really kind of think it was going to be one or the other or, or both. They really didn't want to do both at the same time, but that's kind of how it ended up. Um, and so they didn't actually use the plan that they had. They, they modified it really at the last minute, in the last few weeks before the shooting started, they modified it. But they, they made one huge mistake. Uh, and again, this is debatable. You can have art, really a lot of fruitful arguments about it. But you know, like they never had a chance to win because they were fighting. The, the army fought two wars simultaneously. Uh, 
They fought a war against Germany and they fought a war against Austria-Hungary. They never got all that together as like, what's, what's the one thing we need to do to win this war? And there was competition between the commanders fighting the Germans and the commanders fighting the Austrians. If they put, they just said, you know, let's hold off on one and to put everything against the other, they, they might've had a real shot at knocking that one out. But they kept, they tried to fight both simultaneously, um, uh, dividing their forces and all their resources between these two um, enemies. And that, that was just not gonna work. Um, so the actual performance, again, uh, kind of on the same lines as the Russo-Japanese War. Soldiers not all convinced that this was the right war for them to die in. Um, the the autocracy never really sold that war. Uh, it, it, the basic Russian citizens saw it as a war of aggression. Russia attacked Germany and Austria-Hungary, not the other way around. Uh, that didn't really excite a lot of people. Um, they had to, you know, expand their army from one point three or four million to up like six million at any given like fourteen million people eventually were mobilized, but the standing army, the fighting army, was about six million um, from nineteen fifteen onward. Uh, so they called up a lot of reserves, uh, like millions of reserves, uh, many of whom had been rioters during the revolution, <laughs> revolution nineteen oh five. Those guys have now been called back to the military. Um, and so they brought their 1905, six, seven, eight attitudes with them. Um, and so uh, discipline was uh, tenuous at, at a lot of times. And they're communicating their discontent to the younger crowd. Uh, they didn't have enough officers. So they had to um, uh, lower the standards and bring in really tens of thousands of uh Barely literate, uh, semi-educated uh, men from the lower classes, um, who the nobles had no respect for. They didn't work very well together. So there's a lot of tension within the ranks between officers, uh, many of whom who wanted to do well, but class attitudes kind of affected that. Uh, short periods of training, you know, there's going to be that problem, and lots of casualties. To, you know, again, tens of thousands of officer casualties taking out your your better trained officers, uh, experienced officers in 1914. So, uh, but now on the other hand, you gotta give, give them a break in the sense that this is a huge army. It's like nobody in Europe was used to handling armies of, of this scale, not the French or the British or the, the Germans. So that presented just a tremendous amount of challenges for uh, training, uh, I mean, um, replacements, logistics, um, uh, all that was was extremely, extremely challenging uh, on, a, on a huge front, you know, a massive front. Um, uh, and against, you know, the, the, they, they, they typically held their own and did very or did or did well against the Austrians. They never did well against the Germans. Um, they, they just were not up to that. And, and there was kind of a phobia about, I don't want to go fight the Germans. <laughs> Somebody against the Austrians, that, that's a, we got a better chance of success down there. So, but, uh, you know, uh, the defeatism set in rather quickly, particularly 1915 was a disastrous year uh, for the Russian army when the Germans uh, and Austrians put everything they had against the Russians and pushed them way back into Ukraine, Baltic states, Belarusia. 
Um, and then the, the attitude, even of the high command, I, I have a quote in one of my books where uh, uh, Alexia, who is the chief of staff, uh, said he had a, he, started, he, he opened up a, a staff meeting of, of, of the, the commanders running the war. He says, okay, so we all know we're not going to win this war, right? Okay, so let's not delude ourselves. Like That's not a good way to start a meeting, but very realistic. So their plan became after 19, well, in 1915, it's like, just just hold the fort and let Britain and France win the war. You know, we just got to, we just got to not lose that. That's kind of what, where they stood. Uh, but they did have one major success in 1916, the, the Bruce Loeb Offensive, uh, pushed the Germans and Austrians back uh, in considerable ways, but it wasn't strategically significant as it turned out, cost another million casualties. Um, and that was kind of the last straw for the soldiers. It's like the soldiers had no interest in winning the war. Um, they didn't really want to lose, but that was an option. <laughs> um, and so that, but it was the casualties, the, the hard life, the, the officers began to be more brutal again. And the, the, just dying for nothing, the massive casualties kind of led to uh, massive discipline problems people like to point towards oh everything just kind of fell apart in february 1917 but really it was it is late summer 1916 where we start to see mutinies uh happen and uh they're brutally suppressed there were hundreds of soldiers executed uh between july and december 1917 um, uh, 1916 sorry um for disobedience and mutinies people refusing to go to the trenches Troops that had been in reserve refusing to go back to trenches or refusing to, to do their basic chores or whatnot. It's like, we're not good. Yeah. And then there's also growing discontent on the home front, which eventually leads to the first, the revolution of February 1917 that leads to the Tsar's abdication. And then later that year, of course, the Bolshevik revolution in October, November uh, 1917. Now, what role did the Russian army or Russian soldiers play in those events in 1917? Uh, well, we can skip really quickly to the Bolshevik Revolution and say that uh, there was the army played no role whatsoever. The Bolsheviks had done a really good job of creating dis, uh, disorganization and discrediting the officer corps. So the army was a non-factor in October. That was their goal. So February is where the army played a, a very significant role and, uh, and a lot of unintended consequences went on in that one. Uh, but it was the senior commanders that pulled the plug on Nicholas. Um, they had actually thought, uh, or they tried to organize a coup against him. Uh, they wanted his, um, his cousin, Nicholas, Nikolai Nikolaevich, um, to take the throne. Uh, they had actually approached him as like, if, if you agree to take the throne, we'll get rid of Nicholas the um, second, and he wouldn't do it. So the high command had turned against Nicholas in 1916. They wanted him. They didn't want to end autocracy. They wanted to get rid of that guy and get a new czar in there. And so when you had the revolution or, or the revolutionary disturbances in Petrograd in February or January February. Um, well, February, um, and a delegation from the new uh, government that created by the mob, the, 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 the out of the Duma, 
the, the legislature, they came to the high command physically. They, they, they went out there and had a meeting and say, okay, we're in a position to change politics here. Um, uh, are you with us? Are you willing to get rid of Nicholas II and have him abdicate? And and the high command was absolutely, we, we, we will make that happen. And so it was the high command betrayed Nicholas II, thinking they were going to get, at that point, his uh, younger brother, uh, Michael, to take the throne. Um, so well, actually, they were hoping his I, I skipped ahead though that they, they were going to have him abdicate to his son, right, uh, Alexei, who was the, the hemophiliac, uh, and then create a regency, so somebody would rule in his place until he became uh, uh, until he reached adulthood. But of course, the, the other story is his father actually did abdicate to him, and then like, wait a minute, he's a hemophiliac; this will kill him. So he got another article of abdication i don't know where they had these articles of abdication hanging around but they got oh here's another one <laughs> and he changed it he abdicated a second time to his younger brother um which was fine with the uh the duma it was fine with the military but uh, uh rioters the revolutionaries in, in petrograd wouldn't have any of that they wanted to end autocracy completely uh you know the, the far left the workers they want to get rid of it so they uh, announced anybody, well, if Michael takes the throne, he's a dead man, that we will do whatever it takes to kill him and prevent a restoration of the monarchy. Uh, now that Nicholas has abdicated. So Michael wisely said, uh, I will only accept the throne on popular acclamation, <laughs> which was not going to happen, and he knew it. So now they have the unintended consequence of the end of the autocracy end of the monarchy and now Russia's a republic so they had to have a you know this uh, provisional government while they worked out a new permanent form of government and that's the interim when the Bolsheviks would organize and take over but in that interim uh, the Bolsheviks goal was to take the army out of the equation and that's where the common soldier came in uh, without any prompting that they well you have the infamous order number one from the Petrograd garrison about um, uh, the Petrograd Soviet ordered the soldiers to not basically just don't obey their officers if it had any anything anti-revolutionary about it. Don't surrender your weapons. You don't have to salute off duty. You know, but basically, an officer gives you an order that is contrary to the interests of the working class and the revolution. You don't have to do it. Form committees to represent yourself and vote on whether you're going to obey a particular order. So that was directed only at the garrison in Petrograd, but it immediately was transmitted to the soldiers at the front. And they're like, that's a great thing. We're going to do that too. And at that point, and it, it took a couple of weeks for that to, into March before that got everywhere. But the officers lost control of the army. You know, all the soldiers had committees that uh, at, from um, company all the way through like army level committees to represent their interests and, and that made the army a non-factor in October but they stayed at the, most of them stayed at the front they still stayed there they were willing to defend Russia while a new democratic definitely left of center government was to be formed that was the the, the, the aspiration of the broad masses of soldiers that and peace and to go home.
Yeah, this also had an impact on the Western Front a little bit with uh, the mutinies and the French army around the same time. Because uh, I think it was a Russian unit fighting on the Western Front when they heard about this going on in Russia. They enacted it, and that kind of got the French soldiers uh, a little bit of the idea, too. Is that true? I've never seen that direct link. Um, so the February and March was in Russia. The, the French was not until till July. Um the troubles with the uh, Russian, there's a, a, a brigade uh, in France was like, okay, now the czar is gone. We don't have to do army stuff. We don't want to. Um, that was their attitude. Uh, but the revolution itself did affect French politics and the ideas of, is this old just war or not, were definitely part were seeping into the French army, um, but they had every reason to mutiny. Well, you know, for the, the 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 mindless waste of lives. You know, they want to win the war, but our officers are doing it wrong. And we're dying for nothing, so um, they didn't need any political inspiration from the Russians to do that. Um, and news was pretty well. Uh, there was a lot of censorship in the in in France at that time, so I just don't think I've ever seen that connection. But there were Bolsheviks. There were agitators uh, trying to get to the front with Bolshevik slogans uh, in uh, uh, yeah mid late 1970. But they were French agitators, French leftists. You know, yeah, France had a huge uh, socialist communist movement of its own during uh, this but, uh, uh, the, time. The more important point I think you, you're you're getting at is the major effect it had uh, the, the the revolution. And the army going into defense mode was it enabled the Germans to transfer a million soldiers to the Western Front to launch their, their spring offensive. Um, that uh, the British and French militaries were really panicked about that. They wanted the, the Russians to, you know, resume offensive operations, which led to the you know the the the, the, the June offensive in 1917 was was a huge failure and discredited the. The moderates in the provisional government. Now, once the Bolsheviks take over, they, of course, have to defend their new regime because they're still supporters of the czar and of the provisional government, the so-called whites. They're trying to, you know, overthrow the Bolsheviks. So they form, so the Bolsheviks, they formed the Red Army. How was uh, this new army formed and how did it compare to its czarist predecessor? Well, so the Red Army in the, in the Civil War is, is its own special animal. And you can't really compare that to the Red Army after the Civil War. So the Red Army in the Civil War was completely ad hoc. Um, they did not want to use the old army. They just didn't trust it. They didn't trust Matter of fact, they, they dismissed all the officers uh, from the army in December, 1917, because um, they took over really November. So, um, so it was, and, and this actually began the process of demobilizing that of the old army while they're forming a new army of, you know, class conscious workers and peasants, which was a real, uh, it was just ad hoc. Everything was ad hoc, made up on the moment. Um, and, you know, very, very worried about the political loyalty of the people that got put in charge. So that they came up with the, the institution of commissars because they realized, you know, actually we do need military experts <laughs> here to run our army was got to be like three and a half million uh, in size so they had to recruit uh old czarist officers to come and work for them 
uh, with they weren't very forthcoming to do that. So they they actually passed a law that if you you don't serve, you it's a crime, and you will confiscate your property or even kill your family um, or kill you. And that that did happen. Uh, there's one general uh, had been dismissed. And in 1918, so a, a commission from the Red Army showed up at his house and was like, hey, law says you need to come work for us. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And they shot him right there in his front yard. Um, so, he, so so he had, the, by compulsion, you get thousands of former officers and you're promoting up radicalized soldiers or just workers and peasants who want to take the lead. And sometimes that actually worked out pretty well. Kind of like, I mean, the, the Napoleon, some of his his marshals were butchers and tailor or whatever <laughs> just never know who's got talent so um but he had the commissars to watch these guys to, to make sure they were not going to betray the soviet union so well, it wasn't even the soviet union then but is after the war they started okay we need to now we need to figure out what kind of army we really want and a lot of bolsheviks says we don't even want an army at all armies are bad they're tools of oppression of the of old old thinking old elites so they they shrunk it down to less than six hundred thousand. Didn't have any money for it, pretty much. Uh, reduced. I think they kept the uh, two year enlistments, make it even better. Cycle guys through, but uh, they wanted just you know politically reliable workers in it, uh, not relying on peasants at all. Um, they had a big citizens militia, like a national guard type thing going on. So like a couple million of them, but only a very small standing army. But the military professionals hated that, you know, uh, the Bolsheviks who decided to make careers in the army and some of the more left-leaning uh, czarist officers who stayed, who actually got promoted up. A lot of lieutenant colonels and majors or captains, you know, stayed with it and made their career in the Red Army. Uh, they wanted a big, large standing army. And they worked on that until uh, Stalin finally okayed it in the early 30s. Started to grow till uh, World War II broke out. So. Yeah, and in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War in the 1920s, there was also that dispute between Trotsky, who kind of wanted more of the the military professionals, but then there was also Mikhail Frunz and the Red Commanders, who wanted more of that proletarian style of warfare. That there was a distinct like communist style of warfare that had nothing to do with the old czarist system or what the old czarist officers were trained in yeah exactly and that that, that took years to work out and it ended up and, and basically a compromise i mean frunza uh was an amateur but pretty smart picked up on a lot of military uh, good military ideas that he tried to repackage as his own that were he borrowed from the czarist era uh, military thinking um but even he came to realize it's like well things you know, you, you do need to line up and shoot <laughs> and maneuver in large units. And that's going to take, that's kind of traditional. You just can't pretend that doesn't count anymore. And he kind of came to that realization. But then he died in 1925 and his successors became over the years, more and more traditional, less and less revolutionary. Uh, yeah. And I know Stalin, he was more favorable to the red commanders because he didn't really during the Civil War, he wasn't really trusting of the the old Tsarist officers. And in some ways, does that kind of have an effect when we get to the Great Purges, when he starts targeting the, 
the the Red Army uh, commanders. Yeah, Stalin was never comfortable with the army. Um, the old um, the old imperial officers, uh, but also Trotskyites. I mean, a lot of officers came in under Trotsky and thought he he was right and doing things right. It backed him politically. Um, it, but I think he was just always afraid that the military as an institution would escape control of the Communist Party and act in its own interests. So, um, but there are, there are multiple purges. Everybody thinks about and is aware of the purges of 37, 38, pretty much. But there was a purge in 1928 where they dismissed like 14,000 officers uh, for political reasons, and they were mostly Trotskyites. That Stalin is like when he's he's wrapping up the power struggles. Like we need to get, get Trotsky's people out of the army, um, and that from that point on, they had an officer shortage for the rest of until World War II. Then there was another purge in 1930, orchestrated by the secret police, um, not by the party, not by the army, um, uh, of the old officers uh, who are all entirely loyal by this time. Uh, it's like they're just. Now we're talking like senior. These guys have been in for a while, a lot of them, and they were just making their careers, getting their paycheck. You know, not no intention of rocking the boat, um, but it was pretty much a fabricated case against all of them as being disloyal, just based on class origins. So about three thousand officers were discharged, some executed, some went to the camps, others just sent home uh, of all different ranks. It was very, uh, very political rather than there's no merit to it at all. And then you get to the big purge. Uh, the more deadly purge in the 30s. That was part of of the whole uh, purge of society. So, uh, you know, it would it, be very wrong and you, you wouldn't really learn a lot if you just looked at, if you ignored the rest of the purges. If you just looked at the army and say, why is the army being purged? Uh, if you looked at it in isolation, if you had looked at the big picture, if let's say the army wasn't purged and everybody else is being purged, like, why isn't the army being purged? <laughs> Uh, it was just everybody was getting purged. It's like Stalin was clean, and we don't really know. I mean, there's a, so much speculation and so little actual evidence of evidence of premeditation. What was he thinking? You know, and and the people around him who encouraged this, who wanted it to happen, like what were they really thinking? Because it was so irrational uh, on almost every level, um, but. Uh, definitely the the, the, purge, the the distrust he Stalin showed in the military, uh, you can trace that back to 1825, the Decembers. It's like the discomfort uh, of autocrats uh, with the, the military and the potential for it to take action. Uh, but even before 1825, I mean, um, there, were, there were no palace coup succeeded without the military. All the successful palace coups in Russian history were backed by the military. The, the, the guards units that were supposed to protect the Tsar sided with somebody else and got rid of them. So this is uh, this kind of a constant. I, I think even Putin uh, feels the same way. So um, that, that's just the context of it. Is like Stalin was insecure about a whole lot of people at a whole lot of levels to an irrational extent. And he was supported in this by uh, the secret police, uh, other high-ranking Bolsheviks, thought this was a good idea. Uh, Stalin and, and uh, Yezhov sat down and, and made lists, not necessarily of people, but of quotas of people to be purged. 
in, in the various provinces. And we have documentary evidence. I, I show one to my class every year, like a document signed by Stalin and uh, telegrams uh, provincial leaders sent back to Stalin saying, we need a larger quota. Uh, we want to arrest and kill more people than you have authorized us to do. So the idea of purging and cleaning out society was you know, uh, rampant throughout the party and the secret police, the party leadership and the secret police. Um, so Stalin was not like forcing something on Russian society that that or, or his party and the, the, the government apparatus didn't already want. And there were people within the military who, who like, yeah, we still haven't got rid of all the all all the traitors, all the potential traitors, and whatever. So, so obviously the effect of that was was not good. <laughs> you lost a lot of really good talent, but you also lost a lot of mediocre talent. You know, after the fact, everybody was a military genius that was purged, and that's not really a sustainable uh, viewpoint. Uh, there, there is. Uh, uh, I went through like the bios of, of almost everybody, and they're like, "That guy wasn't that good." He's <laughs> like, he got replaced by somebody of the same caliber. Like, yeah, I don't know. Um, but it really caused a lot of discipline problems. Soldiers, like, I, I don't know if I can trust my officers because they're all traitors. Uh, and that, that really hurt daily life in the army, the ability to train and control, command your, your troops. For years afterwards, in 38, 39, even 1940, you had soldiers saying, things go wrong and like, I think that guy should have been purged. <laughs> that, that officer is not trustworthy. We overlooked this guy. Uh, very right, uncomfortable time to be an officer in, in, in those circumstances. Yeah, and uh, kind of reminds me of another constant because we were talking about the Okrana uh supervising or uh, looking over the army's shoulders throughout the 19th century and now we get to the soviet period and now we got the first the cheka and then it becomes the nkvd kind of looking over the uh, army's shoulder once again so it's almost like yeah all the new is just like the old but repackaged in a way yeah. well interestingly enough when the uh bolsheviks set up their, their uh, cheka they, they didn't know how to be secret policemen. So they hired the Okrana people to teach them how to be secret police. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, you were tracking us down. Tell us how, how we'd track people down. <laughs> we know how to be tracked down. By. And so they brought that they, I think the Okrana instilled the same ideas and as far as methods, but also ideas of who needs to be watched under what circumstances. And that included the military. Yeah. yeah I've heard a story that well into the 1980s, the KGB would even still use like some of the old Okrana manuals for uh, training just to try to give like agents uh, a basic idea of how to track people and so forth. Yeah, I hadn't heard that, but it makes perfect sense. Absolutely does. Yeah. Now we were talking about the disruption of the purges on the red army and this kind of has an effect on the performance of the Red Army during the early stages of World War II, most notably its invasion of Poland, but also most famously in the Winter War against Finland. Can you kind of explain this? Yeah, well, uh, so my claim to fame, my very first book my, came out of my doctoral dissertation, was to temper our um, assessment of the damage of the perch. Not to say that, that there wasn't any, but there were some other very important things going on that made it a whole lot worse than, than it was, that made the situation worse. And so we can't blame everything on the purge. And, and so my claim to fame is pointing out 
the vast expansion of the military. So, I mean, they probably lost about uh, no more than 22,000 officers in the purge uh, at its height. Then a lot of those guys got rehabilitated. So it was really closer to like 12,000 were lost, which is not good. <laughs> but meanwhile, the, uh, the army went from less than a million to by the time the war breaks out to uh, four and a half million. Okay. You need a lot of officers. Okay. Um, and so they didn't have them. They started to, you know, they, they uh, I mean, just massive recruitment drives to get officers and get them trained. And they never did. They never had enough officers. Officers they did get were like party members and come small members forced to be officers, um, promoting from the ranks uh, and sending them to school, whether they wanted to be or not, and shortening training. So training was typically like the really like the rest of the world, four years of a military school or college uh, ROTC that they had their, their version of that. They went from that to, you know, 90 days. So you have all these, we have literally hundreds of thousands of new officers in 1939, 1940, 1941, um, with minimal training um, and put in, they, you know, you have lieutenants uh, who've been in the army for six months commanding battalions. Okay? That, that actually, I've left you speechless. <laughs> that's that's crazy. You know, it's like they, these guys are way above their training and experience. And so you see that in Poland, and but also in, in the Winter War, where you have uh, a, a lieutenant, a senior lieutenant or a captain commanding a battalion. He's got uh, a whole bunch of junior lieutenants who have been who've been trained for three to six months at best, um, you know, running companies and lower levels. And so it, it's just not going to work well. Uh, and so you really can't blame that on the purges. Uh, if he hadn't had any purges, You'd have a much better uh, command experience whatever, at the top, but the lower ranks still would have been the same. You still would have had to have hundreds of thousands of new officers who are, again, that lowered the standards you know, to uh, eighth grade, then to sixth grade education, three months of, of training. You still would have had hundreds of thousands of guys doing that. Um, those guys are at the tip of the spear. Uh, and then you're going to have massive casualties and then you just that cycle just going to continue through the whole to finland to to barbarossa to the end of the war um like they have almost a million officer casualties so you know some of those guys got got fixed up and sent back to the front but a, a lot of them didn't so you can see at the, at the point of the spear the guys leading the troops into attack it's just constant turnover with with short amounts of training and and again low standards and also your your high you know, like Shanghai guys to be officers who who don't want to be officers that's not a good situation. So I, I credit that as being, you know, and again it's just a judgment call. But my that was more important than the purges, you know, which is not to say the purges were irrelevant. They were very relevant, but even with, even without them, you would have you would have had just a, a, I think a disaster. Uh, and even the army, Voroshilov, uh, who was commissar, and then Timoshenko kept trying to tap, tell Stalin, tap the brakes on expansion. So you give, you're giving us too many guys, and we don't have the leadership for them. And Stalin ignored that. So the, the Ministry of Defense saw this coming, and they, they 
couldn't stop it. Yeah, that goes a long way to kind of even explaining the performance of the Red Army during the early stages of uh, Barbarossa. Yeah. Well, one of the things you also have to put some global context here is like, who did well against the Germans in 1939 or 40 or 41? It's like nobody did. So you can't say, well, the Russians should have. It's like, well, that's kind of a arbitrary thing. It's like, so uh, the, the Germans, and you know, whoever has the initiative and plans, they, they have the advantage right there. You know, so they had the advantage. They got to strike first, pick where, where the battles are going to be fought and how they're going to be fought. So they, they started with every advantage in that way. Um, and, you know, so on, on such a massive scale that I don't think there's any army in the world that's going to handle that very well. You know, so I think um, I, I, I'm kind of soft on, on assessing the Russian. They made a lot of mistakes. Um but still, still, they were, they were up against uh, a, a highly trained, highly motivated professional force where their army, again, got it so big, so fast, uh, under-trained, under-officered, ill-led, and under-equipped. They, were, they, they got troops on board before they had boots, uniforms, rifles. It's tough for them. Even the Ministry of Defense is like, stop, let us build barracks, let us build tanks and artillery before we get installed. It's like, no, we've got to have guys now. Well, a lot of unarmed, untrained guys is not going to stand up well against, you know, the first SS Panzer Division. Well, that's how it's going to work. So, it yeah. Took a, yeah, so you can't really, I mean, the, the army has to accept some of its responsibility, but you know, Stalin was in charge, and Stalin said, "This is what you're going to do, whether you like it or not." And they they coped as best they could, which you know they they were in a bad spot to to respond to that situation. So. Yeah, and then slowly as the war progresses, from like 1942-43, the Red Army actually kind of starts improving its performances at Stalingrad, at Kursk, and then later on with Operation Bagration, and then finally with the capture of Berlin. Uh, how did like the Red Army kind of start to kind of perform better against the Germans in the later stages of World War II? Well, one of the very helpful things that the Germans did was to kill a lot of incompetent Russian leaders or capture them. Uh, um, you, you still had guys who, who made their careers in the Civil War um, leading major units. I mean, corps, armies who, who were not up to the task. Um, and who are very much, like I said, very much like um, the attitude when we're going to see this again uh, after the, the Napoleonic Wars, where they were very self satisfied. Um, a, a tremendous number of senior leaders in that now in 1940 or 41 been in the army since the Civil War, where they had dashing cavalry attacks and routed the whites and the old Imperial Army. And they were like, don't tell us what to do. We, we won a war. And they, I don't say stuck their heads in the sand, but they, they just didn't look at modern technology, uh, how, how that ought to be used. And so the people who really were into that, Kukashevsky, so they got purged uh, or they were the subordinate to these guys. So you still had a, a generational layer of leadership that was still thinking in terms of World War I or the Civil War. And Barbarossa got rid of them. Either they were killed, captured, or and a lot of these guys with Stalin knew them, and he was buddies with them. They were politically reliable people that he trusted. 
even Stalin had to say, okay, you need to go and get a job in the rear area or time for you to retire. They didn't shoot these people up. Uh, we decided, okay, you would re remove them from command. And that opened up uh, slots for people like uh, Yuzhukov to rise to the top. Uh, the, the generation that kind of started their careers in the, in the 20s from lower levels who were in tune with mechanized warfare, potential for air power, those guys, uh, finally in, in late 41, but throughout 42, that new generation is rising up, uh, learning from war, from the experience, um, and finally taking charge in late 42 and 43. The new generation has the authority, the experience um, to, to run the war. And Stalin trusts them. After Stalingrad, um, Stalin finally backed off and, and put Zhukov and the general staff in charge of the war. Um, he, of course, he made all the very important strategic decisions. Other than that, uh, the general, the, the new cohort of generals uh, had proved themselves and, um, you know, they got the job, but still at tremendous cost. Um, but it was a, you know, they, they mechanized the military as much as they could. Um, and and they, they came up with really good plans. Uh, they, they understood how Germany fought. <laughs> Um, and uh, how how they could be beat and what it was going to take, and they did it. Yeah, and then World War II ends, and the Soviet army is pretty well battle hardened. Now, what kind of role did the Soviet army play? Because it changed name from the Red Army to the Soviet army uh, after World War II, and what kind of role did it play during the cold war and i know we're talking about like a 50-year period but generally speaking what kind of role did it play uh during that time yeah. well uh it's kind of a whole over overview art i'm in a cold war is like we, we see we see the attitude we saw after the civil war and after the planet wars the senior leadership are very satisfied with themselves it's like we beat hitler we won the war uh let's just continue business as usual um, so they they were not uh, open to learning anything um, else. I mean, nuclear weapons come along. They say, okay, we can incorporate that into how we always do things. We'll just add that to the mix, but we're not going to change our, our um, and missiles and whatever. We still need lots of tanks, tanks and infantry. That's what we're on artillery. That's what we really want. So there's a, a fight inside the army. Then you have another generation coming up like, well, we can do things more sophisticated. We don't need all these tanks. We can do missiles, whatever. So the, all that, um, it would take another 20 years to get the World War II generation out of out of control of the military and get the new generation to think in new terms. But still very, very heavily influenced in their thinking. War with NATO was going to be like, War with Germany, they basically saw it that term in those terms. But um, the officer corps now has very high status in society now. Um, they have no shortage of officers until uh, the Gorbachev era and Afghanistan. Then you start to have people like, I don't know if I want to be in the army. But this is the like the only time in Russian history where they they could turn people away. We have too many people wanting to be officers. Um, so very very high status there. Um, but being a draftee, no, people didn't want, want, to, want to be a private in the in the Soviet army either. It was seen as kind of a a an un, unwanted break in their life. You know, two years of wasted time. Um, 
uh, or three years, actually. He kept back and forth. It went back three years in 1939. So, um, yeah, service as an officer, open to anybody, but service as a private, but it's still, still conscription, is based on conscription, like, like always. Um, but well, other than that, um, the, the role the Red Army played during the Cold War was mostly a negative role in that it uh, was an economic burden. Uh, and Stalin immediately demobilized it. You know, they, he got up to like, like 34 million people were drafted during the war or served during the war. And he gets it not all at once, of course, but uh, uh, he got it down to about two million, two and a half million. So we got to get these guys back to work, you know, so all this battle hardened experience now goes back to the farms or the factories or construction sites. So um, the officer corps stays there and kind of can ossify over the next couple of decades. But uh, after he dies, and we get Khrushchev coming in, and he's all about missiles and atomic power. And so he wants to, to keep the army small. It actually had, had kind of grown again. And he's like, no, just shrink the army. Uh, we don't need all as many tanks and aircraft and artillery. We have missiles now. Uh, we can put these guys to work. Don't break up their college careers or whatever they're doing. And that uh, turned the, the high command against him, and they helped oust him. Again, the military is involved. Uh, Khrushchev would not have been dethroned as it was without the military's support. Uh, and he he uh, uh, made them feel threatened for a lot of, he, he did begin to demobilize or shrink the army. A lot of officers lost their careers, uh, were retired early. Um, and so they, they, they were defending their institutional interests by siding with getting him, forcing him to retire. Uh, and that was a, a hindrance for Brezhnev. Brezhnev, to consolidate his power, needed the military, and the military said, okay, we'll support you if you up the investment in the military industrial complex and raise the size of the military. So uh, Brezhnev did, really didn't want to do that, but politically he had to. So the army gets up to basically pre-World War II size. It gets up to like four, over 4 million. Uh, and they throw in the Air Force and the Navy, really a five million man peacetime army or military, which is very expensive, uh, takes guys out of the economy for all this time, uh, all the investment in nuclear weapons and all that and the army became completely mechanized or motorized. Uh, it's also so it was a huge drain on the budget that prevented them from or Khrushchev specifically states that, you know, he wanted to put a lot more money into consumer goods and housing and quality of life that he was unable to do because of the military. So uh, that, that was the, the real role of the military was uh, always wanted to be strong. And every time anybody said, we need to flatline your budget or reduce size of the military, they always said, oh, it's Barbarossa all over again. You know, you'll be to blame if we, if we, if we shrink the military by one guy, you know, things are going to go wrong. They always use waving the bloody shirt kind of of, of Barbarossa, um, very politically charged. Thing. And so that it had kind of had civilians like, okay, I guess. Um, but even Brezhnev, he, he did one of his very last things he did before he died within just a few weeks before he died. You know, he, he'd been trying to just flatline the budget. So we're not going to increase the budget, the military budget anymore, which had gone up every year. And he had to have a special kind of semi-secret conference of party leaders and military leaders to say, to justify that and get their consent to accept just flatline your budget. And that's how powerful the military and the military industrial complex was. And that, 
But then Gorbachev comes along and let, and of course this fuels the Cold War. The West is like, why is this army so big? This is clearly offensive in nature. Um, is it going to attack us? And the Red Army, the communist government was never going to invade Western Europe, but it sure looked like it. Um, and so, and, and the military actively sabotaged um, disarmament talks. Uh, Marshal Akramayev was always throwing a wrench in the works because toning down the Cold War means reducing the military budget, means fewer soldiers, fewer officers, lower status. And it was all about institute, pre preserving his institutional power uh, in, in over society and, and within politics. Then Gorbachev challenged that. Um, and we know what happened then. We had the coup supported by the Ministry of Defense. Um, that you know that failed, but uh, yeah. So the, the 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 army throughout Russian history, from uh, Alexander the First all the way to the, was always economically challenging the growth of the Russian private sector, uh, of the of the government's ability to to put money elsewhere that would help broadly, you know, the, the broad sector of society rather than just the military. Yeah, it's good that you brought up the August coup because that also contributed to the formal collapse of the Soviet Union. And that, of course, entered a whole new phase for the Russian army. What were some of the challenges that it faced in the immediate Soviet, post-Soviet era, like the 1990s? Yeah, the 1990s were absolutely terrible for, for the Russian army. Uh, you know, breaking up, you know, all all the, the units and the, the soldiers going back to their, their nations, you know, uh, all the national, the, the, the Estonians and Latvians, they're going home, Ukraine being a separate military, a separate country now. Um, uh, it, it just had to completely reorganize um, the, the Russian army and, and decide, like, what, what, what was their new mission? And, and that was a huge problem is because like there were no credible threats to Russia. So you don't need a big army. So we can have a smaller army. And Yeltsin uh, just massively cut the military budget uh, and shrank the army to uh, graduate. I mean, it was kind of, part of that shrinking of the army was just being dis it disintegrated into the national components. But you got down to like 1.2 million. Uh, but the budget really probably was only sufficient for, you know, 750,000 uh, guys were going with you know, not, not being paid, uh, massive desertion and massive draft evasion. Um, uh, so uh, there's a big rift between Yeltsin and the military, but they had nothing to work with. He kept promising, oh, yeah, next budget, next budget. But he never did. He never did fund them adequately and you know uh and they they kind of showed that they didn't really deserve it when you had the the you know first chechen war um just kind of chechen first chechen war and the war with finland kind of has some parallels it's like very poorly planned uh we'll go into you know the the, the winter war with finland was supposed to be won in 12 days finland's gonna be completely conquered in 12 days <laughs> chechnya um, the, the chief of staff said this will take three or four hours, <laughs> and you know they didn't plan it. They didn't give, they didn't re rehearse it. They, they didn't give a, a lead time for the to organize the two. They just like we'll just show up and shoot a few people and it'll be fine. It'll, it'll just incredibly sloppy uh, amateurish operation. You know, it was discredited them in the eyes of Yeltsin, who, who needed a victory for his political purposes. 
Um, so I have very, very poor relations between the general staff, you know, Ministry of Defense general staff, and Yeltsin, the civilian. But Yeltsin surrounded himself basically with anti-military reformers. So we, we have to completely change our economy. We're no longer commerce. We're going to have a free market economy. we got to put money into that. And he was absolutely right. Um, but he left the army out, out to dry. He hung them out to dry. And so when he uh, designates Putin as his successor, Putin immediately goes to the military and says, you know, back me and I will make you great again. Uh, restore your budget, expand your personnel, give you modern weapons and everything, which which he did. Um, didn't expand. Actually, he kind of left them uh, about a, million, a little under a million. Um, but he definitely restored their budget. Uh, and the high tech we weaponry came in and all this stuff. So Putin knew what he was doing. So you need to have the Russian military. Uh, on your side if you're going to consolidate and maintain power. Yeah, and uh, especially with the ongoing war in Ukraine as of October 2023 when we're recording this, uh, you kind of end on that conflict. What can be said about the Russian army fighting currently in Ukraine, as much as we can tell at this stage? Because, of course, our access to all the uh, information and sources is... Uh, kind of scarce and limited due to the fog of war and you know the secrecy yeah. in russia well it's it's a real mystery why they haven't got their act together yet the fact that they started out again like finland like chechnya one not uh, overestimating themselves completely underestimating their enemy. this is a massive intelligence failure on, on all three of those occasions but they in those other well with finland and and well, throughout the Turkish war, uh, initial failure, they managed to regroup, figure some stuff out, and then get the job done uh, to to at least some level of satisfaction. Um, why they haven't done that this time, I don't know. A lot of us, it, it, you know, studying the watching this war, thought with the mobilization they had last year when they got three hundred thousand guys in, that they would have like set them aside, trained them equip them and come up with a plan to use them 300,000 that's a that's a big fighting force with all the equipment you, the tanks that they have in stores everything they could have brought out uh, and use that as a strike force to come up with plan B right? well, what, what's your plan B to to break through and get to Kiev or whatever it is you want to do and obviously that that didn't happen uh, it's been a year. <laughs> they they had mobilized was in September of twenty two, and here it is October of twenty three. And where did those guys go? Whatever became of them? Well, obviously, there's no Plan B. They never have not come up with a Plan B yet on on this one. It was like in World War One. It's like they had a great Plan A, they could not execute it, and they never came up with a Plan B. Uh, we just see them doing things ad hoc. Uh, we'll have a big missile offensive. Uh, which is like, you know, strategic bombing from World War II. Well, that didn't work then, and it didn't work this time. Uh, they had to, they were, you know, recruiting guys out of prison and using Wagner. Uh, that's absolutely extraordinary for Russian history to have, you know, mercenary force. And just kind of do the World War I and, and Stalingrad sort of style meat grinder um, in which, uh, you know, they take massive casualties. It's like those 300,000 guys must have been used up by now. Um, fed into the line with no obvious plan to, to win this war. It's just going to slug it out, see what happens. Well, 
Uh, it's really unimaginative. It, it shows no really strategic thinking or or dynamic military theory going on here. Uh, you have uh, some of the, the things we're seeing re repeated, uh, officer shortages, um, which they had in World War One and all, all through that. Um, you know, junior officers have been taken, must have been taken. We, we don't have any good data, but uh, I mean, battalion commanders on down, they're, they're losing thousands of those guys. Well, that takes a long time to train them up. Well, you don't see that happening. You don't see people volunteering to be officers or volunteering for this army other than um, uh, massive patients. Some of the things that are, are really, really different this time, uh, which is because of the collapse of communism and you have a whole generation that grew up with uh, of a freedom to understand the world <laughs> on their own terms. You have a whole generation that is skeptical. They haven't sold this war to the people who need to fight it. People in their 20s and 30s are the ones most against this war. Well, those are that's your soldier age. Um, the army was uh, afraid. They're afraid to do uh, they, a full mobilization. Putin's afraid to do another partial mobilization because of popular unrest, which they didn't ever really take that into account significantly before now they have to actually worry about <clears throat> alienating people to the point that they might have a revolution they might strike back so that that's extraordinary um they you know they were trying to man the army on a volunteer basis that was one of yeltsin's thing go to an all-volunteer army was the generals resisted um and they they got up to over half the army was on a volunteer basis uh at the start of this war uh but that's very, I said, can you see my hands? A voluntary, uh, the contract guys, most of them started out as actual conscripts who were then convinced to take contracts, either with the higher pay, which is actually decent pay for a contract soldier, or uh, all kinds of false promises or, or just tricked into signing contracts. So, um, but they're not manning this war on a volunteer basis. Uh, they haven't sold it to the people. They're afraid. Even the, the annual the annual drafts are taking place, but in the past it was just like okay we need to draft ten times as many people. They haven't done that. Uh, again, they had, for some reason they're obeying the constitution, but they have to go to the Duma to get permission to change the um, the number of people to get drafted every every year. And they, apparently they're afraid to do that. That uh, the Duma would of course approve it, but I think they're afraid of public backlash. So you know the, the they're they're fighting a war without popular support, and they're not using the resources they have in an effective way. Uh, it's just it's just a mess. It's, it's not impressive at all that, that, that all these years and a lot of these guys actually started at Gerasimov and uh, other senior very senior officers started their careers as lieutenants in the Soviet army back uh, in, in the. 80s before uh, before Glasnost or even late 70s, and when the, I think I begin the chapter, my last chapter, I think it's like, well, from the transition from Soviet Union to the Russian Federation, it's like uh, nothing changed. They didn't change their doctrine. They didn't change anything because they they said, well, nothing went wrong during Soviet army. So why would we even change anything when we become a so they they brought all that that thinking with them, 
um, and it hasn't, you know, kind of kept up with the times. Well, this has been a very fascinating and enriching uh, discussion. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, maybe touch on anything in the book that we didn't get to in the interview? Uh, no, I just kind of want to reiterate what I started with is like, you know, if you look look back all the way to the Polonic era, you, you see the, the, the major trends that, that, that the things that transcend each era. It's like, well, this is really how Russia does armies. <laughs> You know, um, but what we're seeing right now is is like historically different, uh, and it's because the I think the they we were not dealing with a czar or Bolshevik dictator yet. I mean, he's going in that direction, but but when the Russian people have something to say about having a war, it's it's usually um, no, <laughs> we don't really want that, and that's what they're struggling with now. Uh, which is, you know, very, again, historically, not the norm. Not very different. Well, we always like to end our interviews by asking our guests, what are you working on now? I am working on a book on the Russian army. <laughs> I, actually, it's it's uh, uh, covers even longer time. I'm going back all the way to Peter the Great now. But it, it's it's a war and society book. With, mostly more society than than army. Where it's, it's really like, how has Soviet society... Um, interacted with the army. It's from the civilian point of view. What do they think about the army? What have they done about my, my first chapter? I already finished. It's all about conscription, uh, how how they man the army from Peter to to the present, um, and which focuses a lot on uh, uh, draft evasion and popular attitudes. It's like is this an army I want to be in, um, you know, or or not? And it's still mostly not. Um, uh, and you know, the second chapter was on, you know, like life in the army, so soldiers' experience, uh, going from being a civilian, and what their expectations are, how, how are these being met, what is life like, and why people are are reenlisting or not, uh, and how their their service in the army connects with their their family life, their civilian life, what they what they expect uh, and interact uh, with that. Um, and so I got another, my next chapter is going to be on the officers, you know, how that has changed and but relative to the status in, in society uh, and how they feel about running the army and their responsibilities to, to society as servants of, of, of Russia in that sense. Very fascinating. Maybe when you finish that book, we can have you back on the podcast. I hope so. Uh, Roger Reese, uh, thank you for joining us on the uh, New Books Network. It's definitely my pleasure. Glad I could serve. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.